0: Maybe at the risk of sometimes being too honest. I tell you that uh, I like the idea of preparing messages. I enjoy that process I like uh, I like the research and the reading and the praying and the the digging through and pouring through the Bible and the different translations and going through the the original languages written in that, that, that's all really a joy for me where I'm, my stomach gets tied up in knots is this part the delivering it. So I, I I keep saying I'd love to be a sermon writer for somebody that would be that would be my dream, um, and I, I got to tell you the last week and this week and and next week, these have not been entirely joy filled weeks of sermon preparation and this is why, this is really heavy stuff. What we've made the decision to do is rather than take Holy Week and, and condense down into seven days when we really don't meet and gather and talk about anything, we've decided to stretch those last days and hours of Jesus' life out into about a month and a half. And so we get the opportunity to spend a lot more time talking about texts that we usually don't even get to talk about. And the problem with that is that is that they're not easy. They're heavy. They, they feel dark because... There are people out there that we read about that their job was to inflict suffering on other people. I don't like the idea of torture and the and the kind of cruelty that's involved. And the reality that there are people, and, and the Bible says that this is what these guys did, their job was to make the end of someone's life as miserable as possible. And more often than not in the church, we just pass over that. Uh, So we pick up the Gospel of John because we're not going to pass over that this year. We're going to talk about it. We're going to really think about what Jesus went through on the way to the cross. And so, if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to be John 19 starting in verse 1. This is where the darkness really starts pressing in. This is where things really, really start to change in Jesus' life. Now, my whole life, I don't know about you, but I'm guessing your experience has been similar to mine. My whole life in the church and in pastoring churches prior to this one, these verses that we're talking about were skipped over kind of with the unspoken understanding that if you really cared about them, you can read and dig and figure it out on your own. Like as though we all just have this understanding about what's in them and discussing them was unnecessary. But that isn't the truth. The the truth is... We don't want to know. We don't want to understand. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to hear about the pain and the suffering and the darkness and the way that people treated Jesus because this is a real person we're talking about, Jesus, the Son of God. That's what's really being discussed here. This is a real human life. Last time that I preached on this text in a way that's in any way similar to what I intend to do today was almost 20 years ago. I was told by the senior pastor at the end of the first of seven services that I had to change and clean it up. That was unnecessary. People didn't want to hear that. No, nobody wants to hear that stuff. It's unnecessary. It's, it's just too graphic. I think his word was gross. Then he said, besides, we want people to come back and you weren't doing offerings any favor when you talk that way. The truth is we need to know and we need to understand. Because we need to understand the depth of what Jesus chose to go through for our sake or words like redeemed and forgiven and resurrection really don't mean very much. It wasn't a quick, easy journey for Jesus. So as we move close to Good Friday, and we're only weeks away, I want you to consider who would you be in these passages There's a growing crowd of people around Jesus. And if we don't look honestly at ourselves, and if we don't look honestly at what it is that Jesus did for us, then the power in Jesus' life and death and resurrection is really lost because we just don't understand it. We don't understand the price that's been paid. So my intention isn't to gross you out or to talk about things that are icky. My intention is to simply read the words of the Bible and deal with the text the way that it's presented to us. So with that introduction, consider yourselves to have been fairly warned. Now, let's go on. Jesus is just in the middle of this series of trials that were really little more than a a public spectacle to make a political point. And as I got thinking about this, how do we tie our world today and your life and my life into the events of 2,000 years ago that are just so different than the world that we live in? There's just not a whole lot that we can fairly relate to. It's not much different, I realize, that what we see every couple of years, certainly every time we elect a president who's a different party than the last president has been, what we see is this this rush to dig into all the dirt that can possibly be found spending millions of our tax dollars on investigations to get to the bottom of something that really never turns up much of anything, few charges get filed, very little is revealed and less is changed. And yet what happens is that there's a lot of press and there's a lot of sound bites and there's a lot of attention on the national level for a handful of people to advance whatever their particular agenda is. And don't blame it on one party or the other, one person or another. It happens every time there's an election. You know it as well as I do. It's part of what happens with people. That's just what's happening here. Pilate is able, but unwilling, to release Jesus. And so he turns him over to these soldiers who would begin the process of a Roman execution... For a prisoner who challenged the power and authority of Caesar, the problem is Jesus didn't do any of that. He made clear in the passage that we looked at last week that His kingdom isn't even of this world. He doesn't offer much of a defense because He really doesn't need one. And yet it continues. His course is set in John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. This is where I was told 20 years ago, don't talk about that stuff. People don't want to know. See, we don't have any idea what it means to be flogged. This is where the barbaric torture for the Romans begins. It's the reason that the rest of the world feared the Roman army. They were ruthless. And they knew how to instill fear in everybody who saw what it was that they did to anyone who would in any way dare to challenge the authority of Caesar. The audience that first read these words, that first heard them, they knew what's being talked about when it says Pilate sent him to be flogged. They knew because they'd seen it, they'd heard it. They'd walk past the streets. They understood the weight of those simple words the way that we simply never will because they'd seen it firsthand. Often, flogging was a death sentence in its own right. In Jesus' case, we know it was only the beginning. There were men in the Roman army whose job was to flog prisoners. Their job was to whip them in such a way that it brought them to the edge of death without actually killing them. And they were good at it. The thing that just kind of scares me and makes me sad is that they may have enjoyed it. And why did they do that? Because it instilled fear. Because everybody who watched knew that it could be them if they weren't careful. A Roman flogging was brutal, it was bloody, and it was often a deadly death sentence. The prisoner would be tied with their hands bound together and stretch over their heads in order to expose their back and their abdomen. There was nothing they could do. They couldn't move. They were tied in such a way that all that they could do was stand exposed to whatever was coming next. And then the Roman soldiers would use a thing called a flagrum and it consisted of a wooden handle with a series of leather thongs attached to it, straps of hardened leather that were flexible just enough and embedded in that were bits of bone and bits of stone and bits of sharp metal all the way up and down those leather pieces. The look of it alone would have scared just about anybody into saying whatever they needed to say to avoid feeling the business end of one of those. Then the flag room was used as a whip and it was embedded into the skin and the muscle and it tore away flesh and muscle from the skeleton underneath it. And it wasn't that they did it at a time or two, they did it over and over and over and over again. It got to the point where essentially it was no longer muscles holding a man up. It was the bones and whatever they happened to still be connected to. And because they whipped the back, one of the organs that was most affected, which was the lungs, which are very near the back, making breathing extremely difficult. This becomes very important when we look at the crucifixion that Jesus endured next week. See, the Romans knew what they were doing. Massive blood loss that would begin immediately. Breathing that became incredibly difficult. The person would want to die and they just simply didn't. And yet after the horror that was the flogging for Jesus, it says in verse 2, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. The crown of thorns, of course, was to hurt him and to mock him. It was to make fun of him. The idea that he was a king? Well, what kind of a king wears a crown of thorns? And then they took what had to have been an expensive purple robe. Expensive because the only way that you got the color purple was from a rare sea snail. And to procure that color from the snail was a long, long process. To dye and saturate a fabric into actual purple took a long time and a lot of money. And so they put this crown of thorns on his head and this purple robe, which indeed royalty would have worn, And in verse 3, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. They're mocking him. The next stage of this horrible time in his life has begun. They're mocking him. And if the injuries weren't enough, now they're using their hands to inflict more pain and to do further damage to his internal organs. See, the sad thing is that we see they're saying the right thing Hail, King of the Jews! He was. They said the right thing, but they didn't believe it. Jesus really was there as a King. He came to save the Jewish people. He made it very clear from the very earliest part of His ministry. So as I'm putting this together over the last week, it makes me wonder, how often do you and I say things that are true, but because we don't actually believe them, we discredit whatever it is that we're talking about. Have you ever prayed not believing God would really answer? Have you ever prayed believing that God couldn't answer? Have you ever prayed and kept on worrying? How about when we call Jesus our Savior without submitting to Him as our Lord? You know, sitting in church doesn't make us Christians. Submitting our lives to God's will for us. That does. you ever said you're sorry when you weren't? ever asked for forgiveness or told someone you forgive them when you really didn't? How about saying that we're a new creation in Christ because that's what we're promised when all we're really doing is working harder to cover up, cover up the selfish sinner that we've always been? I wonder, are we any different? So I said at the beginning, what I want you to do, and this is not fun and this isn't easy, Mentally, put yourself back 2,000 years ago. Where would you have been? What would you have said? What kind of stand would you have taken? And if you need help understanding, what kind of a stand do you take today? I'm not asking you what kind of a Christian you are. I'm asking what kind of a stand you take for Jesus. Verse 4, Pilate went out again and he said to them, See, I am bringing him out to the, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Pilate is a wimp. He's a leader without strength. He says Jesus is not guilty, but He turned Him away to be flogged as though He was a guilty prisoner who had committed a crime against Caesar himself. Pilate says, I don't find anything wrong with him," And yet this all continues. Verse 5, So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate says... Behold the man. See, that was what Rome wanted to do, was they wanted to show you that they owned you. As a man or as a woman, Rome could do with you what they pleased. It didn't matter. Here's Jesus, beaten and bloody. He didn't say, Behold your king. He didn't say, Behold the Son of God. He didn't say, Behold your Savior. He says, Behold the man. Verse 6, when the chief priests, now these are the religious leaders, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. This death hungry, blood thirsty mob, a beating and a flogging wasn't enough. Now they wanted him dead. See, what they wanted was the comfort of their easy-to-follow rules and their crooked religious leaders that turned a blind eye to however it was that they wanted to live in their comfortable and faithless world that they had created for themselves. What they had done is they abandoned God who came to earth in order to save them in the person of Jesus. They said, crucify Him because we want the life we already have. They would rather live under the oppression of Rome doing what they're told, running the risk of being flogged themselves than to recognize Jesus for who He really is. It was at this point that I realized I'm not sure how much of a warning beyond this I can give us. This is getting awful close to home. We weren't there, but might we have been? We didn't say the words, but in our own way have we? I asked you recently, "What do you really want? Do you really want a relationship with Jesus as your Savior, the way that He presents Himself to you, or do you want a fake, fake, empty, sin-filled mockery of a relationship with God, where you use God's name in vain to put a rubber stamp of approval on the life that you really want to live?" That's what's at stake. These Jewish people didn't want a Savior. They wanted to be left alone in their sin. What do you want? I ask you often, who is Jesus to you? What do you really want Jesus to be to you? Verse 7, the Jews answered Him, We have a law. This is a Jewish law. This is not Roman law. This is not civil law. This is law without earthly teeth. We have a law, and according to that law, He ought to die because He has made Himself the Son of God. See, the danger of law and religion, the danger of being more concerned about sin, is that we focus on that, not the relationship with God, which is exactly what they've done. They've called on their law and they've ignored the Son of God. Jesus didn't make Himself anything. He simply is who He is. And they won't accept it. And so what they did is what evil people do all the time. They lie to get what they want. Remember the charge we looked at last week that they brought that got him here in the first place? He says, what's the charge against him? He's doing evil things. If he wasn't doing evil, would we have brought him? What kind of a charge is that? And so they lie. Because they have no truth to stand on of their own. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. This is interesting because we saw last week that Pilate was afraid too. It isn't the first time that he's been afraid. Something in Pilate's wimpy, hollow heart knows that Jesus is more than just a criminal or somebody who's trying to to accomplish something under the radar of Rome. He knew who He had just turned His back on and He knew that He had a right to be afraid. Verse 9, He entered His headquarters again and He said to Jesus, now it's just the two of them. Just the two of them talking. They're not in front of the crowd anymore. He said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. See, he's pleading with Jesus. Just tell me, where, where, where do you come from? i got to imagine in Pilate's mind, he'd never encountered any. He'd encountered all kinds of people who had stood against Rome. He'd never encountered one like Jesus. Where do you come from? He's thinking he speaks the right language. He has the right look. Everything about him, and he's so quiet. He's such a peaceful man. Where do you come from? And and i got to believe in Jesus' mind, he's thinking he wouldn't even understand if I told him. Pilate is pleading with Jesus to give him some out. Pilate wants to know just exactly what it is that he's about to do. So Pilate says to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless I've been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the the greater sin. He's speaking, of course, of Judas. Jesus has just told Pilate the only authority that he's got doesn't come from Rome. doesn't come from Caesar. It comes from above, God. And Pilate didn't argue with him. And I think in our world today, we have got so many people that think they have authority. We've got so many people, whether it's religious, whether it's political, or whether it's just in the world around us, who think that they have authority that they have earned or taken or stolen or, or powerhoused their way into. But nobody has authority if it isn't from above. Pilate didn't even argue that. Verse 12 From then on, Pilate sought to release him. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. He's taking threats from a mob full of people who have no power. But he knows what they're saying is if word gets back to Caesar that Pilate let a guy go who made a claim of being a king, he's the one who's in trouble. Pilate makes the mistake of having the fear but not being afraid of God. He's instead afraid of powerless people. And I have to wonder, how often is that true of you and I? How often do we fear people who have no power and authority over us? Who might snarl and bark and growl, but who have absolutely no power whatsoever. Verse 13, So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Kings and rulers literally sat on a judgment seat when they made their rulings kings would sit inside the inner gate of the city, whoever the ruler was, and they'd sit on a platform with a throne, and they would judge the people as they came into the city. The people from the city would come out to the king, and they would bring their, their lawsuits, the things that they needed him to decide on, for him to judge from the judgment seat. So I can only pull one picture today, but this is from the northern Israel city of Dan. This is a judgment seat, and Daedra is looking as judgy as she can. What would really happen, and this is what happened in the city of Dan, is that the king would come out, the ruler would come out, and there would be a platform with a big chair, and then you see the round things. There's four of them on either corner. Those would have big pillars, and there was something of a tent over it. And the people would bring their complaints out to the king, and the king would judge them, deciding who was right, who was wrong, who got and who lost. And if someone came through the gates, they would judge them and say, no, I don't want you in my city. And they would have to go. There's literally a judgment seat in every city that had a ruler. The Bible tells us that on the day of judgment, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. See, the thing that's cool about the Bible is that the people who heard these words understood what flogged meant. They also understood the importance of a judgment seat. It talks about in the book of Revelation that we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God... The very first Christians that heard this, they understood exactly what that meant. They knew what it looked like. They knew that the decision that would be made was either you get into the city or you don't. The judgment seat of God says either you enter heaven or you don't. They understood it and so often we pass over these words and these passages in Scripture as though we all understand them when we don't. And one day we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God which is why we have to have these difficult messages sometimes. Verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and He said to the Jews, Behold your King. You know what's interesting about this? John includes that this is all happening with the religious festival. The biggest one of the year. All of these righteous, religious people are not nearly as worried about the celebration that they're in town for as they are about doing away with this guy who claims to be their king. And in that verse alone is a contrast that we can't miss. He says to the Jews, Behold your king. I believe that Pilate is stating a fact as he understood it. I don't think he's mocking Jesus. I think that there's a part of Pilate who really understood and knew who Jesus was. Problem is Pilate's too afraid of losing his political position. If the Jews revolt because he lets Jesus go, he's out of power. So just like Jesus, Pilate refuses to take or just like Peter, Pilate refuses to take a stand for Jesus, and Jesus is left on his own. And it makes me wonder how often do we have the opportunity to take a stand for Jesus? And we just don't because we're afraid of what people will say about us. We might lose our power. We might lose their respect. They might think that I'm crazy. They might wonder why it is that I go to church. I've been able to keep it a secret up till now. Peter did it. Pilate did it. And I think all too often you and I do. Verse 15, They cried out, Away with Him. Away with Him. Crucify Him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your King? The chief priests, the religious leaders answered, We have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine someone saying something like that today? Jesus isn't my king. My king is fill in the blank. So what about you? What in this life do you worship? Do you welcome Jesus into every moment, every conversation, every interaction? They said, We have no king but Caesar. And that sounds pretty crazy to us, but you know what happens every day in America? We haven't changed. If anything, we've just gotten better at it. You know what happens every time we have an election? At any level. City, happens in school boards, it happens in counties and states, and it certainly happens nationally. Never ever have I taken a stand politically in front of you from this pulpit, nor will I. What I have said to you is this, Vote with your faith leading your vote. Don't vote with your political agenda leading your faith. It doesn't work that way. If we ever are ever going to do anything as Christians, our faith has to mean something. It has to have some teeth. And what that means is if you vote for someone who stands against the commands and decrees that we read in the Bible, whether you agree with them or whether you don't, If you vote against Scripture because your political leaning is in the opposite direction, you have just declared that Jesus is not your king, but a modern-day Caesar is. Put in the name of the political candidate who stands for what you believe in. If you don't like the way our country is headed, but you don't work for and vote into office strong Christian candidates, you just voted for Caesar. If your politics are more important to you than living and accepting the truth of God's Word as revealed in the Bible, unchanged, you have chosen Caesar. You announce to the world that you have no king but your preferred political agenda. Americans are no different than that death-hungry mob 2,000 years ago. Why? Because we choose our wants and our preferences and our politics over Jesus, over the clear language of God's unchanging Word. We deny Jesus just like Peter did, and we choose to make Caesar Lord of our lives instead of Jesus. We choose a false idol, an empty promise. We choose to stand with the crowd that denies Jesus rather than standing up to the crowd for Jesus. There's people today who claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but they worship themselves and their own abilities, their own I can do it. They've become their own Caesar. Some folks call themselves Christians, but they worship another human relationship. They worship another person more than they worship God. Today we're seeing churches, entire denominations, that have forsaken the Word of God for a religion of convenience that feels good to them, And every time they gather together, they take the name of the Lord in vain as they worship a political ideology that denies God the way that God has revealed himself, Himself to us. They preach political correctness in hopes of not offending people without any concern for the way that the shallowness and the faithlessness of their gatherings offend God. And yet what we're told to do is to take a bold stand for Jesus. As I thought about it and thought about how I shouldn't talk about it and then realized I'm going to anyway. There's people in America today, and I'm going to let you run this one through your own filter. You're going to get it. There are people living in our country today who do not believe in one known and called Allah but who have made Allah their Caesar and they bow to worship Him and everything He represents. They block the very name of God from being spoken all the while lifting up this ungodly agenda in hopes of political and personal and financial gain. That's calling Caesar a king. I know this is a tough message and I'll tell you this. This is the non soapbox version that I wanted to preach. This is the non-Steve version that sticks to the text and lifts up the Word. Had you gotten the version that I wanted to preach on Thursday, you would have all walked out. Because if I'm passionate about anything, I'm passionate about preaching the truth of the fact that nothing can stand up in competition to Jesus. And yet we do it all the time. In fact, we replace Him. We knock Him off His throne with whatever it is we more prefer. That's the world we live in. We're taught it's okay. We're taught in churches that it's okay. You don't like what you hear, then ignore it. So now you've heard it. What are you going to do with it? Fact is, some of you may choose to never come back. The truth of God's Word is more than you want to deal with the way I've just presented it. That's your choice. But be careful about something. Whatever easier to swallow, more politically correct, less defensive version you might choose to follow may not point you to God. God. But one day you still will find yourself before the judgment seat of God. That's why Pilate was afraid. Pilate knew what he was really up against. We've got to be careful not to worship a Caesar of our own creation said Jesus instead of Jesus, the Son of God, as our Savior and King. And increasingly we live in a world that makes that unfashionable. We're three weeks away from Palm Sunday four weeks away from celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. You have one month to come to terms with your king. Who will it be? Who or what will you serve? Will you serve an idea, an agenda, a politically correct movement? Will you serve a person here on earth or will you serve King Jesus? What will you do with Him? What will you do with the fact that He gave Himself over to the Romans and willingly allowed Himself to be flogged, tortured, humiliated, and crucified? Why did He do that? Well, number one, He did it because He was obedient to His Father's will. But you know why else He did it? He did it because He loves you. So what are you going to do with Him? What are you going to do with the kind of love you'll never be able to repay? What are you going to do with the kind of love that allows a man to willingly give his life for you, asking only in return that you believe in Him? What's your response to be in love like that? Are going to accept Him? Will you deny Him? Ignore Him? Believe in Him? See, here's the truth. Jesus has done everything for you. Now what eternity is waiting for is to hear what you will do. You hear me say a lot, the choice is yours. It is. No one can choose it for you. We talk about it here. I do my very best to tell you what the Bible says, where God stands on it, but at the end of the day, the choice is yours. You're going to follow a Caesar of your own choosing? You're going to fall in line with a personal or political agenda and let that be your king? Or will you choose Jesus, the king who we will see next week died for you? And all that He asks in return is that you believe in Him. What will you do? Let's pray. God, this is tough stuff. It's heavy. It feels dark. It feels sad, but it shouldn't feel sad. God, the the reason that Jesus went through all of this was for us because of our sin. Because we are quickly and easily inclined to choose other things and other people over and above Him. God, rather than us getting defensive and feeling offended, help us to use the words in this passage today to draw closer to you. To realize that Jesus went through all of this. He didn't have to. He chose to for us because he loves us. 2,000 years before any of us was born, Jesus died because he loved us. There's a lot of different responses that the world has. One of them is to ignore it and pretend it isn't real. Maybe he'll go away. But you know, the response that you are waiting for, hoping for, that you desire, is that we believe. That we accept Him. That we give up living life on our terms and submit our life to Him. That we give our lives to the King who gave His life for us. Only in the power of Your Holy Spirit can we do that, God. Thank You for this passage. Thank You for sending Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It's in His name that we pray. So, uh, you know, the thing in universities and colleges today is trigger warnings, right? you got to warn the students when something that might set them off is coming. So I'm going to give you a trigger warning like you need it. Next week we're going to talk about the crucifixion. You think today was heavy? Come back next Sunday. But here's the deal. In only a couple weeks after that, we're going to celebrate the resurrection. And that is a big deal, right? Here's the thing. We get the whole book. We don't have to see it as it's happening. We get to look back and we know God wins. Jesus wins and He's alive forever.